Hi, and welcome back to Common Law, a podcast from the University of Virginia School of Law. I'm Risa Galyuba, the Dean. And I'm Leslie Kendrick, the Vice Dean. This season, we're traveling backward in time, shedding light on some crucial turning points in legal history with stories about how law changed the world. That's right. You might have heard our last episode where we talked with Sarah Myloff about how lawyers and activists came to recognize non-smokers as a group with legal rights, which in turn led to a real shift not only in tobacco regulation, but also in public health law more broadly. So today we're going to look at how a global catastrophe created the conditions for a different sort of transformation in our conceptions of civil rights and civil liberties. The global catastrophe you're referring to, Risa, is World War II, and we're going to be talking about it and its impact on American law with someone who knows a great deal about that subject, UVA law professor Ted White. Ted White is a giant in legal history. He's written 19 books, which have won numerous honors, including a final listing for the Pulitzer Prize in history. We invited Ted to discuss World War II and its legal ramifications with us, especially some landmark Supreme Court cases, a topic he covers at length in his latest book, Law and American History, Volume 3. It's the final work in a series on the evolution of law in America across the entire history of the United States. Ted, welcome to Common Law. Nice to be here, Risa and Leslie. Thanks for having me. Ted, as you write in your book, one of the reasons the war had such an impact on the law in the United States was because of the way Americans defined themselves as against their enemies, the Germans, the Japanese, and then later the Soviets. Could you start us off by talking a bit about that? Maybe the first thing to understand about World War II from the experience of Americans is how comparatively late the United States entered the war. Hitler's Germany, fascist Italy under Mussolini, and uh, imperial Japan have emerged as aggressive totalitarian regimes beginning in the early 30s. Um, and by the late 30s, the Germans are annexing other countries in Europe. The Japanese have moved into China, uh, occupied Korea, and, and the Italians have, have moved into North Africa. And these regimes have formed a military alliance. Now, Americans had not had much participation in overseas wars at all. The participation of Americans in, in the World War I was comparatively slight because we came into the war at the very end, uh, and most of the casualties of the United States in World War I were from influenza rather than from military campaigns. So going from that to a situation all of a sudden in which Japan bombs us at Pearl Harbor, we enter the war, all of a sudden there's a massive military call-up. And what does it look like to the average American? What, what it looks like is a bunch of totalitarian ruffians seeking to conquer the world and impose their regimes on everyone, which are completely devoid of freedom for individuals, in which the rulers of the state control every facet of life. And can one imagine America comparably being occupied and having rulers like that? So it's, it's a big deal conceptually for Americans. I mean, this is a titanic struggle, if you will, for control of the world. And so for Americans, what are the values that they see the United States as standing for in contrast to those other countries? Uh, it, it's it's the, the United States is the so-called leader of the free world. What does it mean to be free? Well, first of all, you don't have a, the state telling you what to do in every facet of your life. You don't have totalitarianism. You have democracy. You have freedom of speech. You have freedom of religion. These values embodied in the U.S. Constitution, but not prior to World War II, really a, a significant part of the Supreme Court's jurisprudence, 
become elevated in public consciousness. And so there's a direct connection, I think, between the, the way in which the war is set up and conceived by American audiences and, and the post-war growth of civil liberties and civil rights. Are there particular examples of legal cases or legal doctrines where you really think you, we can see that show up, we can see that concern manifest in the law? Absolutely. I, I, what happens in the early 40s, um, what, one thing to remember is that although we think of the New Deal as a, a sort of prominently liberal period in American history, and it was in some respects uh, in economic matters, free speech really doesn't begin until the early 1940s. And the early free speech cases are, to an important extent, Jehovah's Witnesses cases. These are religious minorities who are claiming that their civil rights, the right right of, of uh, exor- free exercise of religion is being infringed upon. And typically in pretty mundane contexts like distributing leaflets in parks, but they're very litigious. The, the, the witnesses are a very litigious group and they bring a lot of cases. And it is those cases that force the justices to think more profoundly and deeply about the meaning of free speech, particularly insofar as it involves protection for unpopular communications by minorities. So, Ted, I'm thinking in particular here about two cases that were decided three years apart with incredibly different outcomes. So, Gobitis and Barnett. Gobitis, Minersville School District versus Gobitis, which was 1940 case. And then three years later, West Virginia State Board of Education versus Barnett. That's 1943. They're both religious freedom cases, very similar facts, one right after the other, but the results totally different. So could you tell us a little bit about what happened there? Yeah, the petitioners, again, in both of these cases are Jehovah's Witnesses, although the cases are not typically understood in that fashion. They're understood as flag salute cases because these are both... These are cases with identical fact patterns where a school board is requiring students in the school system to salute the flag. There's a ceremony where you you begin school by going through an exercise in which children salute the flag. This is challenged by Jehovah's Witnesses who take the position that saluting the flag is worshiping a graven image, which their religion forbids. So they want their children to be exempted from this ceremony. Um, The first time the case comes up, a majority of the court says no. The school board can do this because compulsory saluting the flag is a kind of value inculcation exercise that public school students can do. And the flag is a national symbol. And what you're saying in a a wartime setting is pledge allegiance to it as part of being an American. Three years later, with a slightly different configuration of justices, but with some other justices changing their minds, in an identical case, the court goes the other way. And, and, and Felix Frankfurter, who wrote the majority opinion in, in the first case, uh, writes a very impassioned dissent, but he loses. And after that case, there is a majority, if you will, on the court for the proposition that government cannot simply impose its own values on dissenting minorities. So you mentioned at the beginning that the war provoked a rethinking of free speech and also equal protection. So Say more there, right? Race is really in flux at this moment. Race is in flux. The implications of race don't begin to play out immediately after the Second World War. But one of the features of World War II is that there is still some segregation of military personnel. There are still some regiments that are all black and and others where African-Americans are not included. In the middle of the war, Gunnar Myrdal's book, American Dilemma, is published. And, 
and that is written by a, a native of Sweden, uh, but based on interviews and expeditions that, that Myrdal took in the American South, what it demonstrates in rather dramatic detail is that the United States, on the one hand, fighting as a leader of the free world in an arsenal of democracy, is also perpetuating segregation. And that ends up being increasingly embarrassing uh, because, the, because the Soviet Union exploits it. The, the Soviet Union says, well, you know, if, if the Americans are so, are so dedicated to freedom, how come the, the freedom does not extend to African-Americans? So um, certainly um, segregation within the armed forces and uh, recognition of the status of African-Americans in the American South exposes the hypocrisy of American ideals that are part of the rallying cry for the war. But, you know, you go from 1945 when the war's over, Brown is in 1954, and it sounds like obviously there's lots of other moderating and mediating influences here, but how do you trace out the legacy of the war and how civil rights come about? Yeah, the, the, the um, Truman signs an order desegregating the armed forces a- after the World War II ends. But a powerful argument is made by African-Americans who come back saying, I'm a veteran. You know, I fought for my country. And I come back and I'm still being treated as a second-class citizen. I can't go to a movie theater. You know, I can't ride on a bus. You know, here I, I fought for my country. And, and that's just not fair. But, you know, li- litigation being what it is, it takes a while for this to emerge. The easier cases are the higher education cases, law schools that just won't admit African-American students, even though there's no other law school in the state, or a graduate school that, that admits an African-American and then puts him in a separate seat in the classroom and he has to eat in the dining room by himself. I mean, and these in some ways easy cases because the segregation is so patently disruptive of educational opportunities. And how can they possibly argue that that's separate but equal? So let me ask, and I, I don't know exactly how this cashes out, but in our heads now, I think we have the bucket civil liberties that's kind of speech related and some other rights and civil rights, which are more equality focused. And those are in some ways sort of artificial terms for a panoply of different rights that we could slice and dice in different ways. So, you know, did these things that happen, you know, is the legacy of World War II part of how it is that we think of this this whole set of rights? Did it contribute to our understanding of what counts as civil liberties and what counts as civil rights? Are those categories that start to emerge in this time period? They are categories that start to emerge. Um, and along with them emerges the stance of the Supreme Court in reviewing legislation that I call in the, in the Law and American History volumes bifurcated review, which is to say they adopt a more aggressive stance toward reviewing legislation that, putting in your terms, infringes on, on civil rights and civil liberties than they do on legislation that infringes upon economic rights. Like the New Deal, but New Deal legislation. New Deal legislation. So, so you get a lot of New Deal and state social welfare legislation routinely upheld by the court under a so-called rational basis review standard, where they really just ask the court to, to, they ask the legislature to give some purported justification for the legislation. They don't go much further than that. It's very different where the Equal Protection Clause is, is concerned or the First Amendment is concerned. That triggers more aggressive review. And, and the Warren Court has decisions that are very, where you get very supine 
attitudes toward economic and legislation. At the same time, you get rather aggressive scrutiny and some overturning of legislation challenged on, on, on civil liberties or civil rights grounds. Which, you know, just to be clear, is a change. The, the, the review of economic regulation goes right, way down. The scrutiny goes way down in the period of sort of the late 30s and onward, where they start to give this more permissive form of review for economic regulation. That's a change for them. Absolutely. The, the strict scrutiny for some cases, rational basis scrutiny for others, intermediate scrutiny. The court never used to have these levels. Every case was the equivalent of aggressive review. It only began this more deferential form of review in the 1930s. If you think about this in terms of the, the argument that judges shouldn't interfere with legislatures because legislatures are properly elected and judges are not, Supreme Court is not, and it's counter-majoritarian, if you will, for the court to usurp legislation. Well, if that's the case, if the court internalizes that view, then why not have deferential legislation across the board? Why not have it in all cases? Well, because... An idea, and it's a World War II idea, has seeped in to the court's thinking, which is majorities have the capacity to repress legislative minorities. Majorities can exclude minorities from the process, and then they can pass legislation imposing costs on them. It is majoritarian, but it runs counter to democratic principles, and who is going to help the minorities except the court? So it's that sort of memory of a state like the Axis powers where the state completely controlled the welfare of minorities, seeping into the justices' consciousness and making them worry about majoritarian repression of minorities. I, I wonder if we can move that conversation into the Cold War a little bit. I'm thinking about the treatment of communists in the United States during the Cold War, um, where I think we see some similar kind of tensions between the ideals and, and you know, the opposition to uh, the, the purported values of the enemies, but then how we actually uh, apply that in the United States. What can you tell us about that? There's an interesting evolution of attitude toward communism that takes place between the 1930s and 1940s. And, and you know, the, the, the House Un-American Activities Committee is formed during World War II to look into Nazis to look into subversive organizations, and they transform themselves to look into communists. And that really catches on. They become a quite important and influential force in American politics in the late 40s. And the first response of the court is to allow legislatures to engage in proceedings where they are identifying people as communists and dismissing them from positions of public education and the, the people who are dismissed sue, claiming it, it's a violation of their First Amendment rights. For the most part, the court, uh, when Vincent is chief justice. So what years? This is, um, Vincent becomes chief justice in 1946 and stays until he dies suddenly in 1953. So we have on the Vincent court a bare majority for support of this legislation, punishing people for being communists or communist sympathizers. And then after Vincent dies and Warren replaces him and Brennan uh, comes on the court, the majority shifts. But it takes a while for the Supreme Court to revise its posture toward government decisions that punish people because of their views sympathetic to communism. So one could ask, you know, if free speech became a more important value to society or if threats on the ground 
changed, right? I mean, it's, it's a lot easier in 1959 to determine as a factual matter that communists are not a major threat to the national security of the United States than it is in 1954. You know, the House Un-American Activities Committee, all of this has been basically discredited at that point. And you could say, you know, the Supreme Court's coming on the battlefield after the war has been fought to you know, shoot the wounded, basically. The, the Communist Party has certainly been marginalized between the late 40s and the, let's say the late 50s. There is one more case, United States versus Scales, in 1960, in which there's a conviction of somebody for, for subversive advocacy. There's not a single case after that. So by then, of course, the Warren Court is, for my generation, growing up in law school in that period, it, you know, it's a heroic institution protecting civil rights and civil liberties. That's not been its entire history. Well, and, you know, this gets me back to the, the question of the division between civil rights and civil liberties and how that can be kind of a messy distinction because, you know, you think about in Barnett, back to the pledge case, Gobitis treated the pledge issue as a free exercise issue and rejected it. And Barnett comes along and treats it as a free speech issue and says, oh, this is about state neutrality toward ideas. It's not about equal treatment of people, right? It's not about religious minorities, you know, so... In many ways, you do see the court at various times kind of going back and forth and putting things in one bucket that maybe easily could have gone in another. Yeah, I, I think the equal protection argument is the slowest to take root on the court. For example, you could have thought of Roe v. Wade as an equal protection case. And people made arguments that it should be treated that way, right? And instead, it goes off on, on due process. But the, the court is just for some reason, reluctant to embrace a sort of full-blown conception of equality. For example, the, the Warren Court doesn't even bat an eye about gender discrimination cases. The, the, the case they take, Hoyt versus Florida, where a female juror is excluded on the theory that women ought to stay home and not participate in civic affairs, unanimously decided by the justices, including Earl Warren and, and, and Hugo Black and William O. Douglas. And William Brennan, they, they just don't see it. They don't begin to see it until the 1970s. So the, the equality argument is somehow later than the others. So would you say that we're still in the shadow of World War II? I, I would say we are in some respects. Take, um, take habeas corpus in Guantanamo. Something I've learned since the advent of the Trump administration is the extraordinary power that the president has to issue executive orders many of which are not reviewable by anybody, apparently. And what is that all a product of? I, I think that's a product of what we might call the imperial presidency, and that is a product of World War II. Because what you need is you need the idea of an executive who can make swift decisions which don't get bogged down in red tape, which may uh, involve national security. So the national security rationale and the, the sort of imperial presidency conception, I think, are products of World War II. And we are still very much uh, stuck with them. It's interesting because uh, in World War II, you have executive orders creating fair employment practices among federal contractors. It's through an executive order that Truman, after World War II, desegregates the military, right? So you see those examples of executive orders. They look very different. But you, you see examples of those executive orders in the midst of the war as well. That's kind of a double-edged sword. It goes sword, both ways, right? yeah. I also think the, the line of, of um, cases involving uh, detainees uh, from the Gulf Wars and War on Terror, in those cases, the Bush administration repeatedly argued that there was 
essentially no judicial review of these decisions whatsoever. And their, their rationale was national security. And their rationale was a need to have the sort of summary executive treatment. Well, wh where's that come from? World War II. Well, this has been really interesting. And I feel I've learned so much both about World War II and about uh, jurisprudential history. So thank you very much, Ted. Oh, my pleasure. Glad to be here. Thanks so much. So, Risa, that was really interesting, and it certainly played up both uh, civil liberties questions and civil rights questions. And where we wound up with Ted, I think, was a complicated picture and not one where the war is simply a catalyst for uh, progress on either of those fronts, but something that's, that's a little bit more complicated than that. Absolutely. I think there's often a dichotomous effect on civil rights and civil liberties in wartime. Uh, simultaneously, the state is repressing disloyalty, repressing marginal or challenging speech or activism, um, and the stakes are really high and national security is really important. And at the same time, various groups find openings to say, you have to prove why we should be loyal to you, right? If you want, if you're saying we're fighting a war for freedom and democracy, and yet there's still Jim Crow at home, why would I want to fight for you? So one example that that makes me think of is Japanese internment. Clearly from World War II, that's the biggest example, right? So we can talk all about desegregation in the military, which happens after this. And I think African-American activism did soar during this period. And you could see the beginnings of progress, even if um, the fruits of those protests weren't really going to be seen for a decade or two after that. But the Japanese internment is the complete, you know, opposite side of that dichotomous coin. So during World War II, uh, there was enormous panic uh, on the West Coast that Japanese Americans living in California and elsewhere on the West Coast were saboteurs, were spies, were planning violence, were, you know, doing all kinds of nefarious things. And the folks who lobbied for the exclusion order that comes into effect during World War II that says people of Japanese descent can't live on the West Coast and then later not only pushes them out but detains them in essentially concentration camps were the exact same people who had been pushing for various kinds of discriminatory laws against the Japanese for years and years. So they were opportunistically using the emergency of the war to prosecute their anti-Japanese discriminatory agenda. That seems very similar to an earlier time period in history that our conversation made me think about, which is World War I and its relationship to, uh, to civil liberties and free speech in particular, where um, you have socialists being prosecuted under, under the Espionage Act. And it's this combination of national security justifications, but also clear animus toward Socialists, right? So a red scare mentality combined with this sort of national security impetus for for cracking down on them. And you get the same dynamic where the the war and wartime become both um, a catalyst for conceiving of and and kind of crystallizing free speech rights, um, but also, you know, that's coming out of a moment of severe repression. And it's not really until after the war is over um, that you start to see some movement on that. The national security um, justification has kind of fallen away at that point. 
And those are dissents and uh, right. concurrences, right, which is also parallel to what happens in World War II. So the court is deciding these Japanese internment cases, and they uphold Japanese internment, right. but there are dissents that create the possibility for future doctrine that will uphold the civil rights of minorities. That's right. And it seems like that is a kind of common pattern where mistakes were made. You know, mistakes are big, made big, during big wartime. Mistakes, yeah. And and the takeaway, the kind of constitutional jurisprudence takeaway is we learn from that mistake. And this thing that the case comes to stand for is that we're not going to do that again, right? The sort of anti-canon idea. Um, and, you know, that's certainly true in the post-war era during the Cold War, where the same dynamic sets up and the lesson that we take away from all of the McCarthy era, you know, both prosecutions and denials of various types of government benefits or status for communists is that we don't punish people for their political beliefs. But it's it's through a lot of trial and Having error. punished people right, for their political beliefs. Emphasis on the right. error, right, that we <laughs> sort of come to this takeaway. So does that make you think we don't ever really learn because each war uh, we do it again or whether Cold War or Hot War, we continue to make these kinds of mistakes? And I mean, do, can you even call them mistakes if we do them every time or is it just a dynamic? You know, there's a Latin saying, right, that the laws are silent in wartime. Right. Um, and I think maybe you could tell an optimistic story. Well, maybe the laws are silent in wartime, but after each war, then we figure out a way to make that experience meaningful for the law going forward. But you could also say, why don't we ever learn that we shouldn't have the laws be silent in wartime and just treat it differently at the time? Yeah, that's a great question. I see examples going both directions. So on the free speech front, I think we tend to advance and then make new mistakes. So um, at the point of the McCarthy era, there's kind of a collective consensus that outlawing a political party is something that one can't do. And this goes back to early 20th century conversations about whether the Klan could be banned outright. And instead, the um, tactic becomes to get at the Klan through sunlight, through disclosure laws, and uh, through a variety of other types of mechanisms like that. And those same conversations come up again in the communist, in in the anti-communist era. Um, And so maybe you see uh, development, uh, but still uh, not always in the, the sort of best direction. You know, Leslie, we've been talking about how law changed the world and how the world changes law. And we talked about that with Sarah's episode and uh, smoking and non-smokers' rights. And I think here we see a particular way in which when the world changed the law, the law changes the world, which is in both the early free speech cases and the Japanese internment cases, you see dissents and concurrences that are not the majority opinion and are not making law at a particular moment, but that they come back later and they are resources both for social movements and lawyers and litigation and creating opportunities for um, people to continue to challenge the law and try to create new law and then for justices to actually create majorities going forward. Yeah, it seems like these world events, um, they they force changes in the law, which then get pushback, and the the pushback itself then becomes uh, new legal rules that, that guide going forward. So it's a really interesting dynamic. Exactly. Well, that's all we have for you today on Common Law. We hope you'll join us next time for more stories about when law changed the world. If you want to find out more about Ted White's work on law and American history and much, much more, please visit our website, commonlawpodcast.com. 
You'll also find all of our previous episodes, links to our Twitter feed, and more. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to the show. We'll be back in a few weeks with Cynthia Nicoletti talking about the Civil War. In 1865, there's this choice, right? How much military authority is Congress going to put in the former Confederacy? And how much of a wrench do they want there to be? Common Law is a production of the UVA School of Law and is recorded at the studio of the Virginia Quarterly Review. This episode was produced by Sidney Halliman, Robert Armengall, and Mary Wood. We had help from Virginia Kane. I'm Leslie Kendrick. And I'm Risa Gallibach. See you next time.